Hello everybody and welcome back to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. Yesterday I was joined by Kate Levy to discuss The Snowball, written by her mother, Bridget Brophy. Uh, today I'm joined by Kate once again to talk a little bit more about Brophy's work outside The Snowball, her work outside of writing altogether, and uh, Kate's own work maintaining and championing uh, the legacy of her mother. There's a link to Kate's Twitter page and her website bridgetbrophy.com in the episode description box below. But we began picking up where we left off in the snowball section by talking about Brophy's relationship with Iris Murdoch. To speak for myself, I've never managed to finish an Iris Murdoch novel, I don't <laughs> And although I believe my mother did manage to finish them, she was no fan of Iris's work. She loved, she loved Iris very deeply and... Um, Their their friendship lasted really until my mother's death, although in a very sort of attenuated form. So having tried and I think failed to become complete lovers from their correspondence, they were passionately involved. Um, And I think Iris adored my mother and um, my mother wanted more commitment from Iris. But uh, the, the one thing that couldn't ever really be quite overcome was that my mother did not admire Iris's work. And I'm fairly sure that includes both her fiction and her philosophy. So there, there is a terrible and searing letter uh, from Iris where um, my mother's patently hurt Iris very much by saying that she, she, she can't, you know, she can't um, admire the work. And so anybody who suggests that my mother drew on Iris Murdoch's work for her own, I, I think is probably, um, is probably wrong. They were, they were such different writers that I find it very difficult to see people, how people admire both of them. And I know there are people who, who do, and I think you do, Ash, don't you? Or I think I do, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yes. to me, I just... I, I, it's nothing. It's nothing to do with um, filial affection. I, ju- I just, ca- I can't. That to, to me, they're just so different. They don't really fit in the same universe. But anyway, um, no. I think my mother was somebody who just created on her own. Was never derivative. Had had her own sort of natural spring of ideas and so on but of course she was influenced by other people I'm not so daft as to deny that but I I think I I, I think it's so difficult to know you can be influenced by something you read that you don't greatly like can't you and you can decide to do it better yourself you know I I so I don't I don't know I don't really know the answer to that and I'm not an academic and I you know, the academics have probably got much more coherent ideas than I. But my, my thought is, no, I don't think the cross-fertilisation that has sometimes been referred to as mutual, I don't think it was quite so simple. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it abuses me because people pe- people do see merit in both of them and quite, you know, and quite genuinely so. And I, I don't want it to appear that I have such a passion for my mother's work that, I, you know, that I don't read anything else. It's, it's, it's not that at all. It is just... Um, a simple temperamental thing that I just can't get on with Iris Murdoch's work. Let's let's talk a little bit about about 
um, Bridget Brophy's legacy. I, I usually ask my guests where they first became interested in um, <laughs> the, uh, their subject's work, but this so it seems like a bit more of a complicated question. No, no, it's fine. I was born. <laughs> yeah, you were born. Um, wh- wh- when did you first become aware of, of your mother's work, I suppose? Well, of course, I knew from um, being a very young child that what she did was extremely boring. And, you know, she sat at a desk all day and sometimes fobbed me off with um, things from um, a central drawer in her desk where, um, you know, something for me to cut out or stick or whatever was was given me. And I was implored to um, not necessarily go away, but to be quiet, you know. Um, And I... I have said, and it isn't, it's not really supposed to be funny, you know, but it, it put me off writing and reading um, for a very long time. And when I was at school, I did realize that she was, she was a writer of some, some renown. Um, uh, She used also to be sometimes on the television and sometimes in the newspapers and so on. So, I mean, it, it all dawned on me, I suppose, fairly slowly. I, took the attitude that it was normal and natural that everybody's mother you know should should be like this and until of course I got you know got old enough to realize it wasn't so but um in terms of her really serious legacy I I don't think I really had recognized the extent of it until after my father's death when I found myself in a position perhaps a little more to try to you know, to burnish it and to 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 try and keep the plates spinning a little bit about what she had done. So yeah, I yeah, I mean, I think you can put me down, Ash, as a very slow learner. <laughs> what what accounts for the for the hiatus in her reputation then? Because she seems I mean, her how has she fallen through the cracks? It feels like she should be considered a you know along with Murdoch and along with people as significant twentieth century um, writers. I don't know. I'm often asked that. And I, I mean, I suppose basically I'm at a loss to explain it, except by the single word fashion. Um, she was undoubtedly um, an intellectual in a world that was probably more tolerant of intellectualism, funnily enough, you know, in the 60s and 70s than it than it currently is. Um, but some, some um, publishing houses have made a really big effort to um, to go vintage and to go back to mid-century writers and, um, you know, to elevate them. Not necessarily all of them are quite as deserving, I think, in terms of their their art as, you know, might be might be assumed. But um, she's she's certainly never had um, somebody come along and, as it were, you know, swoop up a large swathe of her her work and ask to you know, to republish it, which is in a way a shame, but it is so often the key, isn't it, to getting somebody somebody's reputation revived and re-examined. Um, she, she is a very sophisticated writer, I think. I know not everybody agrees with me, but I find her sophisticated, and I don't think sophistication is nearly so appealing as period detail and um, a certain sort of breadth of humour um, which I see in some of the people who've been sort of revivified. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think I think when someone writes novels that are as distinct and different as as 
each of Brophy's novels are. They're, they're much harder to market, aren't they? I think that is true. And I mean, people always want to, you know, uh, um, allocate by genre or by sort of temperamental things and so on. And that that is a difficulty, although, frankly, it needn't be because um, my mother was so consistent in her personality and in her attitude to everything that she did because in addition to being a novelist, she wrote nonfiction. Um, she was she was in demand as a reviewer. Um, you know, so she also did critical studies. wrote wrote critical studies of other writers. Um, she she if you if you if you sort of go into Bridget Brophy's legacy, I think there need be no problem because she's summed up in the words Bridget and Brophy. You know, she she does exist as um, a very sort of charismatic person, even even now. Um, and so perhaps this thing about genre, although it is undoubtedly true, people wish to, you know, to have a quick way of, of uh, sort of referring to uh, a writer by their genre is, is something that can be resisted. And indeed, it should be. It's stupid, isn't it? Because it's not what you want from reading. Yeah. It's just what, what publishers want from marketing. <laughs> You don't have to, you know, you don't, uh, you know, as somebody like my mother, you really don't have to, you don't expect to go along to the library and say, you know, I want something sort of about a, a ball on New Year's Eve, mm, yeah, maybe yeah. Uh, with some snow, you know, uh, if you, if you like Bridget Brophy and you follow her, you know, follow her novels through, that's great. There are only seven of them. Um, and then, you know, if you like that personality, you you would follow, I think, her legacy into the sort of wider arena of the other things that she did. And you could you could argue as well that that a lot of her her not just nonfiction and um, but her her fiction as well is is speaks to um, c- contemporary issues more directly and quite a, a lot more aggressively than than someone like Murdoch. Um, I think in terms of in transit, but also the animal welfare and yes, and I do I I do feel aggrieved that when I applied for a blue plaque for my mother in um, 2015, she was denied one um, because to me her legacy, both literary and uh, you know cultural, to give it a you know societal or cultural, you know is is firmly establishable. It's it's um, not nearly as you know sort of um, nebulous uh, as I think it's sometimes you know put put over. Um, she was very much in the forefront of homosexual equality in terms of campaigning for a change in the law, not just writing ab- about the acceptability of the whole spectrum of you know sexual desire. She 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 was well known as a humanist and an atheist and i mean there are fantastic interviews where she took on bishops and you know all sorts of things in argument yes the animal rights is you know extremely prescient and 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 now very you know very much of this moment um she she was often on a platform for some cause or another again something which people forget because writers need time to write and she dedicated a lot of time to um, speaking to even small groups of people um, and um, and sometimes thankless causes. Um, she was well known as a left-winger, anti-Vietnam, pro-Labour Party, against censorship. Um, you know, all these things um, kept her in the public eye 
and um, she always had, uh, you know, um, a, a, a reputation as an activist, not just somebody writing about these issues, but actively being there as a campaigner. She lent, you know, she lent time to various organisations and um, donated, you know, money to them and so on. And um, then um, the public lending right, which is right the rights of authors whose books are taken out of libraries to receive a very small amount of money for each loan. Um, that was an enormous campaign. She instigated it with help from Maureen Duffy and uh, my father and um, a couple of other people. And it took about seven years to, to actually achieve the legislation necessary for it to be granted. And it's been in existence now for 40 years, uh, just over 40 years, I think. And um, today's authors um, whose books are borrowed from public libraries, you know, um, have my mother's seven year dedication to that cause, um, you, you know, to thank for that, really. So, yeah, um, I think a public she was a public figure, a sort of feisty woman intellectual, but who who was prepared to. Um, to you know, to to back it up with action. What what were the grounds for turning down the plaque? Yeah, um, well, <laughs> I think I'm right in saying I haven't looked up the rejection letter for a while, but I think I'm right in saying the rather ludicrous grounds were were that she wasn't well enough known for a blue plaque. And somebody did point out to me that, of course, one of the reasons blue plaques are so successful is that they highlight people who deserve to be better known, but. I felt very strongly that um, she didn't fit the sort of English heritage guardian reader's idea of what a woman, a, a sort of a woman of her era should be like. She, she was way out in front and um, regarded a bit with suspicion at times. Is there, I've obviously, there's been some recent publications, there's been this latest Faber edition of uh, The Snowball, um, there's been the avant-garde writer, critic, activist. Is there something of a revival? Is it encouraging for you to see? Yeah, it? I think so. I mean, um, I shall reapply as soon as I can for a blue plaque. And I wouldn't want to give the impression that I'm absolutely fixated on this plaque. I mean, my mother's legacy is secure. People who admire her, um, you know, do know of it. And um, yeah, this has been a tremendous help, um, you know, just just in general terms to have these new publications and um, interest coming from now a sort of um, a spread of different interest groups, you know. Uh, so um, it's not all about the blue plaque, but it certainly is, as far as I'm concerned, about trying to keep the legacy alive and uh, for her to be granted um, her place as an important woman um, in in the part of the century she lived in, because um, there are other other people whose names will be instantly recognisable and whose work may be well known, but who who can't necessarily claim to be quite in the same way, um, sort of of cultural significance. And, and there's a huge question, but have we, have we missed anything? I don't want to, I don't want to overrun, but uh, that I've got to the end of my my set questions. Uh, the, I mean, the only other thing, Ash, that I should have said really about the snowball is about the sex at the end of it. I think Freud would love this. I put the sex on a separate piece of paper by mistake. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the time, at the time um, that my mother wrote this book, her 
her description of orgasmic sex from the point of view of the woman rather than um, of the man is what you know made it made it um, a little bit unusual. And yeah, a few people a few people felt uncomfortable with that. But in, by today's standards, I don't think it's you know I don't think the sex is shocking. It's still quite a beautiful evocation of Anna's um, thought processes. It explain in a sense it explains why she can't go go off with Don Giovanni because of the impermanence of the magic that 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 was everything but also physical at the end, and she she's she's got death too much on her mind for for all of that you know so yeah I was just going to say about the sex because um, my mother did get branded as a sort of sexy novelist unbelievable. Really, oh, that is yeah. Maybe this is this is hindsight, but it just seems so su- such a natural. I was going to say natural climax, a natural <laughs> time for that to happen. You know, the 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 sumptuousness of the language that's been building up to that. Yeah, um, it fits it. Oh, I'm, you've started me on the wrong. I'm just going to say it fits in, and now I'm going to just stop. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I need a pizza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, We'll we'll leave it there. That's per- perfect end note. Um, oh, thank you so much, Kate, for that. That was that's great. Not at all. I'm grateful to you. I really am. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you once again to my special guest, Kate Levy. Remember, you can find the link to her website and Twitter page in the episode description box below. If you want to get in touch with me, you can also find my email address and uh, social media links in there. Until next time, happy reading.